Titus chapter two, we are doing a sermon series about how the gospel shapes the church, about how the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ shapes every aspect of our life together in the church. And we saw last week how we are grounded in the gospel. That is the way that we function as a church, our structure, our leadership is all intended to be a reflection of the gospel. But this week we're shifting from the focus being on the leadership to all of us. This is a passage where the Apostle Paul is going to talk about every single group within the church and about how we are to live in a way that reflects the gospel. And as we saw last week, and I want to remind us again because this is so important, the gospel of Jesus Christ, this good news that Jesus is God who died for our sins and rose from the grave and offers us eternal life, the gospel, it's not merely intended to save us. It does that, yes. The gospel saves us, but it also transforms us. It's God's desire, not just that we would be born again, but that we would grow in our faith, that we would progressively become more and more like Jesus Christ. Let me illustrate it this way. Some good friends of ours who were here at the first service, uh, and I got to embarrass them a little bit, just had a baby a little under two weeks ago in our small group. And they're doing great. Baby's doing great. We're super excited for them. Um, but as I was thinking about that, I'm like, they would not want this baby to stay a baby forever for a couple of reasons. One, because they'd like to sleep again at some point in their lives but also because we understand that it's the normal design of a human being to be born and then to grow and to mature and to go through this journey called life. It's the same thing spiritually speaking. God's desire is not just for us to be born again so that he gives us our get out of hell free card and say, hey, see you in heaven, have a nice life. Like, no, God's desire is to continually shape us to continually transform us, to make us like his son, Jesus Christ. To put it another way, God's desire is to make us holy. That word holy means to be set apart. It means to be different. It means ultimately that we would become more and more like Jesus. And one of the beautiful things about the passage that we're going to study this morning is that he takes into account every stage of life. We need different things at different stages along the way. When you're a baby, you need milk. As you grow, you start eating solid food. Your needs change in different stages of life. In the same way, the Apostle Paul is going to show us what we need to do to become more like Christ in every stage of life. So with all of these things in mind, let me give you the main point. We're going to read this passage, and then we're going to jump in. Here's the main point of the sermon this morning. The gospel shapes us in every stage of life— calling us to pursue holiness to the glory of God. With all this in mind, Titus chapter 2. Let's study verses 1 through 10 together. This is what the Word of God says. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior— not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so tra to train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. 
Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Let's open with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that it's true. We thank you that it's life-giving and that it's life-changing. I pray, Lord, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would use your word to conform us to the image of Christ. I pray that you would show us where we fall short so that we might confess and repent. Lord, encourage us, motivate us to pursue holiness that you might receive all the glory. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, before we get to Titus chapter 2 this morning, I want to give us a few theological handles to help us get a better grip on what's going on so that we can have a better understanding here. Here's the deal. If we don't understand the relationship between the gospel, receiving the gospel, and then pursuing holiness as a Christian, we're going to miss the point of this passage, and it's going to lead to confusion in our walk with the Lord. My heart in sermons like this is never to be moralistic. I never want you to hear sermons like this and say, all right, I just need to go out of here and be good. That's the point of the gospel. That's the point of Christianity. Be nice, be good. Guys, that's not the gospel. The gospel is not go and do this. The gospel is Jesus has already done this for you. Receive him, and as an overflow of the gospel, pursue him. So let's take just a minute to talk about what gospel-shaped holiness looks like. Gospel-shaped holiness. First thing we need to understand is that holiness is an overflow of the gospel. Holiness as an overflow of the gospel. That is living in obedience to God's word, turning away from sin and obeying Christ. This is an overflow of the gospel. It is not itself the gospel. This distinction is so important. We are not saved by being holy. We are saved so that God might make us holy. We see this very clearly in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Guys, this is really important. Paul is saying we are not saved as a result of works. We're saved by faith in Jesus, but we are saved for good works, meaning we're saved for that purpose, that God would transform us and we can live lives of holiness and righteousness that please our Creator. A lot of people assume that being a Christian is about being good. It's about being nice. It's about being a good person. Guys, that is not the gospel. The gospel is what Jesus Christ has done for us. The gospel is that Jesus Christ is no ordinary man. He is God in human flesh. That he came into this world living a perfect life that you and I never could have lived. That he died on the cross in our place, bearing our penalty. And then three days later, he bodily rose from the grave. And when we turn away from our sin, when we believe the gospel, when we receive Christ into our life, we are saved. But the story doesn't end there. We're saved, and God begins this lifelong process of transforming us and shaping us and making us more and more like Jesus. 
So we must understand that holiness is an overflow of the gospel. And as we saw when we studied 1 John this summer, it's the evidence that we've received the gospel. The evidence that we've received the gospel is a transformed life. John said in 1 John 2, he says, if anyone says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, he's a liar and the truth is not in him. So our pursuit of holiness is the evidence that we've received Christ. It's the proof because here's the deal. Here's why this matters. Here's why I'm emphasizing this to start the sermon. You cannot encounter the creator of the universe and remain unchanged. You cannot receive Christ into your life. You cannot receive the Holy Spirit into your heart and remain totally the same, totally unchanged, totally transformed. You will look different. Let me illustrate it this way. Man, a lot of people put in a lot of hours doing a lot of great work on this building. Super thankful. I want to take every possible opportunity to thank them. But one thing that a lot of people did was get up on this giant lift thing that's actually still, you might have saw it when you were walking in. It's still kind of parked right at the corner, right around there. So this thing, uh, you know, Nathan's real brave. He would go on it. Other people would go on it. I'm not that brave. I wouldn't touch that thing, y'all. I'm scaredy cat. But so you would get on that thing. You see like the projectors up here and the lights up here. You have to get up on the lift and go all the way up to work on that stuff, to get to the ceiling. So let's say, just for the sake of the illustration, let's say that I got up here to preach this morning and I started telling y'all a story. Hey, this week, you know, one of the light bulbs went out right up there and I, you know, I had to change it. So I ride in on my little lift, beep, beep, beep. I get right there, right up to the top. I start changing the light bulb and I slip and I fall. And I fall head first from like up there and just land straight on the floor. I said, yeah, that wasn't any fun, but here I am. Everything's all good. <laughs> Who would believe me? <laughs> would you believe me that that story was true? Why not? Because if I survived, which is unlikely at that distance, if I survived, I would look a little bit different. <laughs> what I'm trying to tell you is when you receive Christ into your life, you will look different. Your life will be changed. It will be transformed. Your desires change, your thinking changes, your behavior changes, the way you speak changes, everything changes because the gospel shapes every aspect of our lives. So we have to get that. Holiness is the natural overflow of the gospel. But one more thing, why do we do this? Ultimately, we pursue holiness for the glory of God, for the glory of God. That is the reason why we do everything. That is the purpose of our existence. The purpose of being created in the first place is that we might bring glory to our creator. That's actually the reason that Paul gives in Titus chapter two, three times. He says, do this that the word of God may not be reviled. Do this that an opponent may be put to shame. And do this that we might adorn the doctrine of God our savior. He's saying, as we pursue holiness, it glorifies God. And this is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Everything we do is to bring glory to God. So when we understand this, I now think we're ready to unpack this text. As an overflow of the gospel in our lives, this is how we are to live. This is how the gospel shapes us in every stage of life. Paul starts in verse 1 by saying, teach Titus what accords with sound doctrine. And he's about to show us what that sound doctrine looks like in every stage of life. So this is the point, holiness in every stage of life. Now he's going to break this down into categories based on age and based on gender. 
right? He says, young men, young women, older men, older women. I'll let you decide for yourself whether you're in the younger or in the older category, okay? I'm not gonna start calling people out, say all the older people sit on this side, all the younger people. No, I'll let you figure that out for yourself. But here's the deal. Why does he do that? First of all, so that no one is excluded, right? This is for all of us. This is something we all need to hear regardless of what stage of life you are in. There is something for you in this text. But it also shows us something really important. It shows us that every single person, regardless of your age, regardless of your gender, regardless of anything else, has a role in the body of Christ. That we are all valuable to God and that we all have a role to play. This is what one commentator wrote. Jesus' call to be and to make disciples is for everyone in the church, not just one sex and not just a narrow selection of specially gifted and called persons. Some may and should have special gifts and training for this, but in the course of time, virtually all believers in all ages can be of didactic assistance to Christian sisters and brothers. So a couple other notes on this list. First of all, I always find it amusing what he felt the need to tell one group and what he felt the need to tell another group. We're going to point that out as we go. But there's a lot of carryover in these lists. I want to give you an example. He tells the younger men they need to be self-controlled. He does not say that to the older women. Are we to deduce from that only the younger men need to be self-controlled? The older women get to do what they want. No. Paul is a wise pastor. He knows the unique temptations that come in each stage of life, and he's speaking directly to those unique temptations, saying this is what you need to focus on. He speaks both negatively and positively. That is, he's saying here's things that you need to not do or things you need to stop doing, and then there are things that you need to start doing. When it comes to holiness in our lives as believers, both are important. We pursue holiness both by destruction and by construction, by destroying things, by getting rid of sin in our life that we need to get rid of, and then by building up healthy habits and healthy character in our lives. You know, I am uh, not particularly gifted. I'm not very handy or anything, but I did have the privilege of yesterday going back to the old building uh, for old time's sake with a group of guys. We did the most men's breakfast thing ever. You know what it was? We took sledgehammers to like two different walls uh, and tore them out because, you know, they had to come down to put it, the building back how we found it and all of that. We need to sometimes take a sledgehammer to the sin in our life and get rid of it. And then there are other times where we build up, we build up healthy habits and virtues in our lives. We're going to talk about both as we go through this. So let's go through it. First of all, Paul addresses the older men. He addresses the older men in verse 2. He says, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. So just uh, so you know, in this ancient culture, life expectancy was a lot lower for them than it was for us because, you know, praise God for hospitals and antibiotics and air conditioning and uh, whatever else, and refrigeration, lots of great things that we have. So for them, 40 years old would be an old man. So I want you to kind of keep that in your mind. For them, 40 years old would be an old man. But what does he say about the old men? First of all, be sober-minded. Be sober-minded. Yes, sober in terms of things like alcohol and drugs. Don't have your mind clouded by other things. But I think he's also speaking just in general to distractions. He's saying, I want you to be clear in your thinking. I want you to be focused on what God has in store for you. Be focused on the things of God. Next, he says, be dignified. 
I look this, the King James has the word grave. Be grave. When I hear that, I like to get this mental image of just the stereotypical uh, grumpy old man with the scowl, just get off my lawn kind of thing. Uh, is that what Paul has in mind here? Is that the virtue he's calling us to? I don't think so. There's, in fact, it's the opposite. We're called to be joyful uh, and kind and all of those things. What he has in mind here with the word dignified is worthy of respect. Someone who is respectable, someone who through their life, through their reputation, through their character is someone that is worthy of being emulated, worthy of being respected. He says, be self-controlled, that is able to restrain your sinful desires and also able to choose the good. Finally, he gives a trio here, sound in faith, that is our commitment to Jesus, in love, loving God and loving others, and steadfastness, that we would hold fast, that we would be firm in our faith and firm amid the trials that we face. Paul's desire is that the older men in the church would be examples for the rest of the flock through their dignified and self-controlled faith. Then he turns to address the older women in verse 3. He addresses the older women. Look at verse 3 with me. He says, Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. Now, as I look around this room, I don't see any older women. So what we're going to do is, uh, you are all, all of you ladies fit into the younger women category. Uh, so we're going to study this for the sake of older women in other churches so that you can talk to them about this if they need it, but it, clearly it doesn't apply to anyone here. Um, you know, quick story. I was a waiter for like three weeks when I was 20. I worked at Red Lobster and I was only a waiter for three weeks because I was the worst waiter ever. I was terrible. I could not remember anything, but I did learn one thing. And this is a tip. If anybody out here is a waiter, here's a tip. Always card the old ladies. Always. Guaranteed tip booster. It's the one thing I did right. But anyway, that's a freebie. Um, what does Paul say here about how the older ladies are to be shaped by the gospel? First of all, he says, be reverent in behavior. That is, be devoted to the Lord. Be pious. Focus on your relationship with God. He says, not slanderers. In the Greek, this is literally not diablos. I only quote the word because it should sound familiar to you. It's the word for the devil, right? He's saying, don't be like Satan. The word diablos means slanderer or accuser. That's what Satan does. He's saying, don't reflect Satan's character by accusing, by gossiping, by tearing other people down with your words. Next, he says, not slaves to much wine that is not giving into the temptation to overindulge in alcohol. Finally, he says, they are to teach what is good. And we're going to talk about the next verse in a minute. Primarily, he's talking about the younger women, training the younger women in the congregation. They are to give themselves over to discipling the next generation. So I want to talk now, both men and women, I want to talk to the older saints in this church. To those of you who've been walking with the Lord a long time, uh, you're advanced in years, and you're wondering, what does God have left for me? I want to encourage you to consider your legacy this morning. What is it that you want to accomplish with the years that God has left for you here on this earth? Let me encourage you. God is not done with you yet. God is not done with you yet. God has a plan and a purpose for your older years. How are you going to use it for God's glory? 
I'd like to read you this excerpt. This is from a very famous sermon from John Piper preached in the year 2000 that went on to become a book called Don't Waste Your Life. This is what he says. Three weeks ago, we got news at our church that Ruby Alesan and Laura Edwards were killed in Cameroon. Ruby Alesan, over 80, single all her life, a nurse, poured her life out for one thing, to make Jesus Christ known among the sick and poor in the hardest and most unreached places. Laura Edwards, a medical doctor in the Twin Cities, and in her retirement, partnering up with Ruby, she was also pushing 80, and from village to village in Cameroon. The brakes gave way, over a cliff they go, and they're dead instantly. And I asked my people, is this a tragedy? Two women in their 80s, almost a whole life devoted to one idea, Jesus Christ magnified among the poor and the sick and the hardest places. In 20 years after most of their American counterparts had begun to throw their lives away on trivialities in Florida and New Mexico, they flew into eternity with a death in a moment. Is this a tragedy, I asked. The crowd knew the answer, calling out, no, it is not a tragedy, Piper affirmed. I'll read you what a tragedy is. He pulled out a page from Reader's Digest. He read it to them. Bob and Penny took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball, and collect shells. That's a tragedy, he told the crowd. And there are people in this country that are spending billions of dollars to get you to buy it. And I get 40 minutes to bleed with you. Don't buy it. With all my heart, I plead with you, don't buy that dream. As the last chapter before you, you stand before the creator of the universe to give an account with what you did. Here it is, Lord, my shell collection. And I've got a good swing. And look at my boat. Piper concluded with the famous words, don't waste your life. Now, is there anything wrong with enjoying a hard-earned retirement? Of course not. It's not what he's saying. What he's saying is when you stand before the creator of the universe, you want to have something better to show him than seashells and golf clubs. Guys, God has so much more in store for us. Please don't believe the lie that God has done with you. Use the time that you have left. Use the wisdom and experience that God has stewarded to you to make disciples, to train up the next generation. Use the time that God has given you to engage in ministry. I love that when we went to the Czech Republic a couple of months ago, over half of the team was over 65. That is using those last years well, using it for the glory of God, to go and make disciples, to go and spread the gospel. Let me encourage you, consider your legacy because God is not finished with you. Find ways to use the years that God has given you to spread the gospel and to make disciples. But next, he's going to transition now to talking to the younger folks, and he's going to start by addressing the younger women. He's going to do this in verses 4 and 5, where he says, start in the end of verse 3, they are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled couple of things that we see here that he encourages the younger women toward. First of all, he encourages them to be trained by the younger women. This is significant, to be trained, to be humble enough to seek out mentors. 
humble enough to seek out people that can speak into your life. I know he's speaking directly to the younger women, but this goes for everyone. We need people in our lives that have more wisdom and more experience than we do to speak into our lives. Speaking personally, I have two pastors that are over 60 that I talk to on a regular basis about what's going on at the church, getting their wisdom, getting their insight on how I can lead and pastor well. I need that. We all need that. He encourages the younger women to be pure, to be kind, to be respectful and gracious toward other people, committed to purity in the way that they speak and the way that they think and the way that they act. But here's the main thing. He focuses, the, he, he encourages the younger women to focus on their home. He says things like, love your husband and children. He says things like, be working at home. Now, to be clear, Paul is probably assuming that most of the younger women he was writing to would be married and have children. In this culture, that was probably a safe assumption. I get that that's not the case today. So single ladies, I don't want you to be like, all right, Paul, thanks. Like, nothing here for me. That's, that's not the idea. But he's saying, if you are in this stage of life, if you are in this position where you're married and you have children, he's saying, I want you to focus on your home. I want you to make your highest love and your highest priority your home, your husband, and your children. Now, let me be clear. It doesn't mean it's wrong for a woman to have a job when he says working at home. My wife has a job, right? The Proverbs 31 woman had a business. You know, so it's not saying that it's wrong, what he's saying is simply one of priorities. He's saying, focus on your home. Focus on your husband and children. But then he says, submissive to their own husbands that the word of God may not be reviled. Now, that's kind of a sermon for another day. I don't have enough time to unpack all of the dynamics of authority and submission. We've preached on that before. You can find that online. But I can say super quickly now that by God's good and wise design, God has called the husband to take the leadership role in the home and the wife to choose to gladly follow her husband's leadership as his helper. And it glorifies God when a husband and a wife order their marriage in this way. So ladies, let me encourage you, if you're in this stage of life, one of, the, one of the lies of our culture that I think frustrates me more than anything else is how it disdains being a wife and being a mother in so many ways, from sitcoms to movies to whatever else. It's viewed as either, you know, an old ball and chain or even worse, something that's oppressive. Let me tell you guys, there is nothing more glorious than a wife and a mother who loves her husband and children and is raising them to love Jesus. That is precious in God's sight. That's an amazing, incredible, beautiful thing. And ladies, if you are in that stage of life, you are seen and you are loved and you are appreciated by God himself. It's a beautiful and a high calling. Listen to the words of the apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 3. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing that you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Do you hear these words? He says things like imperishable beauty and very precious in God's sight. It's a beautiful thing. Now he's going to turn to the younger men. 
Titus 2.6, likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. I love that. I love this verse. Here's why I'm super amused by this verse. Everyone else gets a long list, right? Everyone else gets a long list. You got to do this, 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 you got to do this. Young men just get, hey, dude, control yourself. You know, be self-controlled. And I love that because what is the one thing that young men most need, but most often lack? Self-control. Young men, if you can have self-control, chances are you'll be fine in every other area. That is the area that we most need and we most lack. There's so many different directions we could go here, but can I just apply this in two different areas very quickly? Young men, there are two areas that you must pursue self-control in order to be a man of God. The first is in your sexuality. Be self-controlled in your purity, in your sexuality. God's good and wise design for sex is that it's something that takes place within the context of marriage between one man and one woman. That is God's good and wise design that we are to cling to as men of God. And so young men, let me encourage you, have self-control, whether you're single or whether you're married. Walk in purity in this area. Abstain from things like pornography or sex outside of marriage or anything that could take your affections away from your wife. We must be self-controlled in this area and pure in this area. This is what God's will for our lives is. You know, it's funny. Young men will often ask, I just want to know what God's will for my life is. He told you, dude. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3. This is what it says. For this is the will of God. When a verse starts that way, we should pay attention. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control, there it is, self-control, his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So young men, let me encourage you, pursue purity, pursue self-control in this area. There's a phrase we use around coastal all the time that I'd like to share with you. It's tell on your sin before your sin tells on you. Young men, if you're struggling, we love you and we wanna help you, right? Tell on yourself. We're not gonna judge you or beat you over the head. We wanna love you. We wanna walk with you. We wanna pray with you and encourage you and hold you accountable so that you can walk in holiness and righteousness. So find a trusted brother in Christ, a small group leader, an elder, a deacon, a pastor. We want to help you. We want to walk with you so that you can honor the Lord in this area of your life. One other thing. Let me encourage you, young men, to be self-controlled in your work. To be self-controlled in your work. I think these are two areas that young men often lack self-control in our area, in our culture. When it comes to sexuality, when it comes to work, Tragically, a lot of young men in our culture are putting off hard work longer and longer and are more interested in video games than a career. You know, I listened to an Audible, a really good book a couple of years ago. It's called The Vanishing American Adult by Senator Ben Sass. Uh, and in this book, his main premise is that the idea of adolescence just keeps getting stretched out longer and longer and longer to where now we no longer think it's weird if there's a dude like in his late 20s and 30s who's still living at home playing video games. 
But the word of God is very clear. Men, we are called to work and to work hard, to support a family, to make a positive difference in society. This is what the Apostle Paul said. He's super blunt on this issue. 2 Thessalonians 3, For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. I just read to you from the ESV. Can I quote to you from the NWT now, from the Nate Weiss translation? Dude, get a job. That's what he's saying. Get a job, work hard, be self-controlled and diligent to focus on your work, to make a positive difference and to support a family. Finally, while he's addressing the young men, he turns to Titus briefly in verse seven. This is what he says. Show yourself, that's you, Titus, in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. I take from this the context here that Titus is probably a young man. And he's saying, I want you, Titus, as a young man, and as the leader of this church, to be an example, to be a model for the rest of the church in your behavior, in your conduct. Same thing Paul said to Timothy. I love 1 Timothy 4.12. He says, Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. The idea here is maybe there's some young men in this church that God is calling you to step up and to lead in some area. And my encouragement to you would be do it. Step up, take that plunge, lead, be an example and a model for the rest of the flock. Well, Paul is actually going to address one more group of people in verses 9 and 10, and that is servants. Look with me at verses 9 and 10. He says, bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Now, I want to be clear. Yes, this is a reference to slavery. And I don't have time. I have like five minutes left in this sermon, so I clearly don't have time to get into the historical context of ancient slavery. So if that's something you're interested in studying more, learning about what the Bible teaches about slavery and how that applies to us today, Pastor Sean preached through the book of Philemon a few years ago, preached an excellent sermon tackling that question. We're going to post that on social media this week, okay? So if you want to learn more about that, I'd encourage you to check out that sermon. For the sake of right now, though, I just want to say very quickly— Paul's purpose in this letter was definitely not to condone or endorse slavery. In fact, he's not writing about the institution of slavery as such at all. He's writing to a group of people, many of whom already were enslaved, and he wants to help those people where they are learn how they can honor Christ where they are. Right, so that's the whole point here. He's trying to help them glorify God with their life where they are. And now praise the Lord— that slavery is outlawed in our country today. That's something we can and should celebrate and praise God for. But that doesn't mean that this text is now irrelevant to us, because I believe that many of the same principles that he gives us in these verses can be applied to our relationships at work. They can be applied to the way that we relate to our employers. Let me give you two ways that we can apply these principles. The first is being submissive and not argumentative. 
Christian employees should be submissive to those who are in authority over us. We should be respectful and obedient to our bosses. We shouldn't talk back. We shouldn't argue, but we should be respectful and we should submit. An employer should be able to look at your resume and see that you're a Christian and be like, man, I want to hire them because Christians are always the best employees. They're always respectful. They never argue. They never talk back. Tragically, that's often not the case, but it should be. That's what we should strive for. But next he says, not pilfering. That means stealing. It means misappropriating funds. Oftentimes in these days, they would have a household servant or steward that would manage the estate, that would manage the finances on behalf of the master. And it would have been easy for them to misappropriate funds and the master would never notice. What he's saying is, no, you need to be people of honesty and integrity, not stealing, but instead honoring the Lord in this area. And that's something that we as followers of Christ must do. We must be people of integrity in the workplace. And ultimately, I love what Colossians chapter 3 has to teach us about our lives at work as Christians. Colossians 3, 23 through 24. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you'll receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So I want to remind you of something. Maybe some of you, you're dreading tomorrow morning. You get that Sunday night feeling in your stomach where you're like, man, I got to go to work tomorrow. Maybe you hate your job. Maybe your boss is a jerk and you don't want to go and you're dreading it. I want you to, I want you to give you something. All right, when you're walking in the door tomorrow morning, you can either, you can say it out loud if you want to, that's fine. Or better yet, just say it in your mind, in your heart. I'm not working for my boss today. I'm working for Jesus today. I'm working for Jesus. Right, that's what this text says. Work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. So even if you're struggling, even if you're frustrated at work, you can say, I can work hard for the glory of God today, being the best employee this place has got, because I want to honor Christ through the way that I work. I want to adorn the gospel through my hard work today. That's what we do. So as we're bringing this to a close, and as the worship and prayer teams are going to come forward now, I want to leave you with one final thought. I, I saved the last phrase of verse 10 for last because I love it. Why do we do all of this? Verse 10, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. That's why we do all of this. Why do any of this? Why pursue holiness and righteousness? Why seek to be shaped by the gospel of Jesus Christ? Because when we do this, it adorns the gospel. Literally, it decorates the gospel. We decorate things in order to make them appear more beautiful to other people. I am horrible at decorating. My wife is over there like, she does that in our home. It's totally her job in our home because I am horrible at it. And Megan loves it. She's really good at it. And we often kind of have a little bit of tension around, you know, Thanksgiving, Christmas time, because she's one of these people and some of you, well, you know, whatever, um, that think that Christmas decorations can be up just, you know, permanently. And she wants to decorate a lot earlier than I do. And I'm like, let's just get through Thanksgiving, please. But let's transition before we get to this holiday. But anyway, here's the point. With this idea of decorations in our mind, what Paul is telling us is that when we live this way, when we live this way, we are decorating the gospel in our lives. When you live this way as a follower of Christ, you will make the gospel appear more beautiful and more glorious to the people around you. 
When they see your good works, Jesus says, they give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So older men, when you live with a dignified faith and disciple the next generation to know and love Jesus, you are adorning the gospel. Older women, when you live with a reverent joy in Christ and you train the next generation to know and love Jesus, you are adorning the gospel. Younger women, when you love your husbands and children and you make your home into a gospel outpost in the midst of a dark world, you are adorning the gospel. Younger men, when you stand out from the rest of the culture by being self-controlled in your sexuality and working hard for the glory of God, you are adorning the gospel. Employees, when you wake up, you get there early, you work hard, you respect your employer out of reverence for Christ, you are adorning the gospel. Even in these things that seem small to us, they seem mundane, they seem every way, what he's telling us is we adorn the gospel when we do this. Don't you see how big of a privilege that is? How incredible that is? that every moment of every day, we can live for the glory of Christ. It's my heart and my hope that our lives, every moment of every day would be shaped by the gospel of Jesus Christ and that we would be a congregation here at Coastal Gloucester that would make that our focus, to have lives that are shaped by the gospel. Let's close with prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for what you've done for us. We thank you for dying for us and for rising again for us. Lord, as we read a text like this, as I read a text like this, I'm reminded of how far, how far I fall short often, Lord, how desperately we need you. So Father, we ask that you'd forgive us for when we mess up. We ask that you'd give us strength to walk in obedience in all of these ways. We pray that you would help us to adorn the gospel in every moment of every day. God, we love you. We're so grateful for you. Bless us as we go from this place. In Jesus' name, amen.